And now, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at just two verses, and and primarily uh, one of those two. Our our text this evening will be Genesis 3 and verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." And that's the reading of God's Word. Let's ask God to bless it to us now. Lord, once again, we do sincerely and humbly pray that Your Word would go forth with power tonight. Build us up in our faith and uh, build Your church. We pray this in the name of the seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head. We pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. There's this pattern I've observed in um, action movies, a pattern in which uh, the climactic events center on a final close contest between the protagonist, the hero, and the villain. Or it could involve multiple good guys and multiple bad guys, but there's always this build-up to the big showdown at the end. And Almost always, the good guy or the good guys win. The hero comes out on top, the protagonist prevails, but in the process of that final climactic battle or, or, um, or showdown, the hero suffers. He never, almost never, comes off scot-free you know, without uh, any, um, any suffering of his own. So in other words, the bad guy goes down and is defeated, but in the process he manages to wound the hero. If you just need an example, think of almost any Rocky movie or almost every superhero movie. There's always the big battle and inevitably some major metropolis gets ripped to shreds by the superhero duking it out with the bad guy. And the good, the, the good guy wins, but again, the bad guy is able to, uh, to, get it, to land a few blows. It, it, it becomes really predictable, doesn't it? I mean, you could almost go to a movie you've never seen before and say, I know how this is going to end. And yet, despite the predictability of it, why do we keep going back to those movies? Why do we watch some of them repeatedly? Why does that theme resonate with us. The appeal never really goes away. Why is that? Well, there are probably some literary reasons uh, that we could come up with, but I think the, the bottom line reason, the underlying reason, is because that reality of this 
this showdown between good and evil in which good prevails, but, but evil's able to get in a few blows. It mirrors the great conflict of all conflicts. It's a reflection of the work that Christ does in the redemption of God's elect. And we just read about it. That plot line and that theme and that pattern that you see in just about every action movie that's ever been produced all comes back to Genesis 3.15. And in the ultimate great conflict of all conflicts, the hero, of course, is the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. But at the same time, the serpent is going to manage to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, I titled this message, God So Loved the World. And of course, by using that language, those words, your thoughts probably go to John 3.16. And in our minds, John 3.16 may seem very far removed from Genesis 3.15. And in some respects, those two passages are far removed. Historically, the, the events uh, described in them, the events that took place in Genesis 3.15, the, the, the words of God to the serpent and then to the man and to the woman, were separated by roughly 4,000 years from when the words of John 3.16 were uttered. But what was announced in John 3 had been promised already in Genesis 3. It was already known that this was coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is the promised seed of the woman sent to crush Satan's head. And so although we, we have to wait until the gospel according to John to read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, God already promised it back in the beginning. It's always struck me how when, when our first parents disobeyed God, they broke his commandment by eating the forbidden fruit, God didn't leave them wallowing in their guilty consciences. He didn't leave them stewing in their own juices. Has it ever occurred to you how rapidly God rushes in and proclaims gospel to his fallen creatures. It's amazing, and it speaks of his tremendous grace. What I want us to learn from Genesis 3.15 this evening is that man's sin brought on the ultimate conflict in which Christ will be his people's conquering champion. Man's sin brought on the ultimate conflict in which Christ will be his people's conquering champion. And I want to talk about the origin of this conflict, the extent of the conflict, and then finally the outcome of the conflict. So first of all, the origin of the conflict, which we see in verse 15 at the beginning, where God, speaking now to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, of course, you know that Satan 
uh, our adversary was in, in Genesis 3 acting through the serpent. Uh, and part of the reason for that is you have there in the garden at creation man who is the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation. God had made everything. He'd made the heavens and the earth. He'd populated the earth. He'd filled it with living things. And then the very height of his creation, mankind, he, he placed his image on man, in man. And in response to that, in almost perhaps uh, mimicking and mocking God, Satan comes to man and he does so through the instrumentality of a creature that reflects his image to a certain extent. We're told that the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. And that's who Satan is. He's crafty. He's cunning. He's a deceiver. He's the great deceiver. Re Revelation 12.9 says he's the deceiver of the whole world. And when the Lord Jesus spoke of him, spoke of Satan, that is, in John chapter 8, he said he is the father of lies. And he is the one, of course, who deceived the woman. If you're, if you're opened to Genesis 3, if you just look back at verse 13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And that's true. He did deceive her. So the conflict comes about initially because of Satan acting through the serpent. And then what happened is our first parents disobeyed God, didn't they? They disobeyed. They ate the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. And in doing so, they brought the curse on the whole world. It's worth uh, reflecting on this from time to time, that the curse wasn't just on Adam and Eve, and it wasn't even just on their posterity. It was really on the whole creation. God spoke of a curse upon the ground and the creatures that dwell upon the earth, not just man. So as sinners... Adam and Eve were by nature at enmity with God. They were lawbreakers. In God's legal sight, they were criminals now. In all the misery that we experience and that has ever been experienced on earth from the beginning of time until today was brought on as a result of this, including and ultimately death. Death came into the world through sin. But that's not the conflict that's being spoken of in Genesis 3.15. That's not the conflict or the enmity of which God is speaking here. Because in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. So God created this enmity. God created this conflict. And we might be inclined to ask the question, well, did he need to do that? Was it necessary for him to create conflict? Wasn't there already conflict? 
Wasn't the enmity of which he was speaking already there? And the answer is, no, it wasn't already there. Think about this. As sinners, as, as people who had newly become sinners, Adam and Eve had become allied with the serpent, not at enmity with him. They had crossed over to his team, in effect. They were allied, in a certain sense, with Satan. They had become like him. They had become liars. They had become deceivers. They had already gotten into the practice of distorting the truth, just as Satan does. And they had become accusers. That's who Satan is. He's the accuser. That's what his name means. And when God says to Adam, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree which I told you not to eat? Adam says, well, the woman whom you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. And he says to the woman, what have you done? And she says, the serpent. Adam and Eve have both become accusers, just like Satan. Blame shifters, yes, but accusers as well. Accusing one another. So think of the irony there. The man and the woman were made in God's image. They were made to reflect Him. And as a result of the fall, they'd become imitators and slaves of the adversary. So when God put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his offspring and her offspring, he made that enmity by way of redemption. He created the enmity by redeeming Adam and Eve. He didn't allow man and woman to remain on Satan's side. His plan of redemption, his plan of salvation, placed them in opposition to the devil. And that's exactly what God does in his work of regeneration. That's what he does when he causes someone to be born again. That's what he does when he takes away a heart of stone and gives in its place a heart of flesh when he opens blind eyes, when he unstops deaf ears, and he causes someone to be able to perceive the beauty of the gospel and he draws him or her to himself. What he says to them, what he has done to them, he said, uh, you were once my enemy, but you are no longer my enemy. You're on my side now. He takes people who were his enemies And he says to them, now you are mine. There was a reformer uh, by the name of Johannes Brentz. I like Brentz because he spent much of his uh, uh, ministry uh, in the region of Germany known as Baden-Württemberg. And he lived his last part of his life in Stuttgart where Hillary and I lived for uh, seven years and uh, and ministered. He wrote this, speaking of... um, of Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15, this is what Brents said. This is the first sermon, the first gospel in all the world about the Christian religion and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, therefore, how after sin, after sin, Adam and his wife were justified and saved and were the first Christians. Well, that's the origin of the conflict. What about the extent of the conflict? We've seen that God created the enmity. He put the enmity there. And the extent of it is this. Not only will there be conflict, not only will there be enmity between the serpent and the woman, but between your offspring, speaking to the serpent, and her offspring. So this is going to continue throughout the generations. It reaches far beyond just the woman and the serpent. In fact, it speaks of basically two families. And who are these two families? Well, like in a, uh, in a boxing match, we can say, oh, in this corner we have, and over in this corner there is, well, okay. In this corner, we've got the seed of the serpent. Who are the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent, simply put, are the wicked. The seed of the serpent consists of unsaved humanity. In other words, non-Christians. They are offspring, seed of the devil. How can we say that? Well, uh, in John chapter 8, verse 44, one of several really epic encounters John records for us when, when the people came and were disputing with Jesus, arguing with him. Jesus said in John eight forty four. To the people, he said, you are of your father, the devil. They had just claimed Abraham as their father. He's, and he's, he told them, if Abraham were your father, you would do what Abraham did. And he points out that they're not following in the footsteps of Abraham and his faithfulness and his obedience and his love for God. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So Jesus Christ himself described a fatherhood relationship between Satan and sinners. And you see that reflected, for instance, in Paul on his first missionary journey when he and Barnabas were going across the, uh, the island of Crete and uh, they end up running into a Jewish false prophet. And in rebuking that man who was, who was opposing the gospel, Paul called that man a son of the devil. Or John in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 8, he equates those who make a practice of sinning, he calls them be, as people who are of the devil. So this is where we, we get this. That that's who the seed of the serpent is. That's, that's the set that comprises the seed of the serpent. It's, it's unsaved humanity. All those who are still in a state of sin and rebellion against God. In the other corner, you've got the seed of the woman. Now, who is the seed of the woman? Ultimately, in the, in the highest sense, that's Christ. But in a relational sense, the seed of the woman is Christians. You are seed of the woman if you come to Christ in faith. So Christ is the seed of the woman. He's the one who 
was foretold in Genesis 3 who would crush Satan's head, but through faith. Christians spiritually become seed of the woman. And these are the two sides of the conflict. And there are only those two. These are the two categories of offspring. You've got seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And there's no overlap. And there's no other category. These are the two families that are at war. These are the two sides of the conflict. And the extent of the conflict is this. It will endure throughout all generations. This epic conflict is going to endure throughout all generations uh, because there's this enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. It doesn't just, it's not restricted to those two, but to their offspring. And so we could say this truly is a world war. And everyone is a combatant. Everyone's a participant. No one is neutral. So this is the extent of the conflict. It is the ultimate conflict. Everyone is engaged, and this war will rage until the end of the age. That's the extent of the conflict. Well, what about the outcome of the conflict? Well, the victor is announced from the beginning. It'd be very, very odd, wouldn't it, if you went to a boxing match and the two fighters come out and they touch gloves and then the referee holds up one's hand and says, here's the winner, before they've even begun to fight. But that's what happens in Genesis 3. We're told in advance who the victor is. And it comes down to this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's a good translation because the the Hebrew word there, he, is singular and it refers to the one unique offspring or the one unique seed of the woman. Again, citing John's letter, first letter, chapter 3, verse 8, tells us that the Son appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And it goes even further. Because the Son didn't come merely to destroy the devil's works. He came to destroy the devil himself. Hebrews 2.14 He came to destroy the enemy, that is the devil. Now God starts this whole process in motion with this curse that he places on the serpent. And that's what we read about in verse 14. But God is going to go on and pronounce curses and, and the results of this disobedience of which our first parents were guilty. There's going to be particular impact, particular outcomes and, and curse for the woman. And then he goes on to pronounce curse upon the man and upon the soil and on and on, but it starts with the serpent. God pronounces a curse on him. And he says, on your belly you shall go. Look at it again in verse 14. 
You're cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the very fact that the serpent now has to go about on his belly, it's, it's a permanent emblem of the final inevitable defeat of Satan. It's interesting, it's very picturesque, it's very instructive how this, this beast that Satan occupied and through which he, he worked is now in this permanently fixed position of prostration, of shame, in the dust, eating the dust, so to speak, a permanent subjugation. And just anytime you see a snake on the ground, let it be a reminder that Satan is all, his defeat is already promised. It's already secured. And then you've got this mutual bruising. He shall bruise, you shall bruise. Uh, that Hebrew word there translated in the ESV, uh, bruise, can mean to strike. It can mean to crush, which is why sometimes you'll hear the language of uh, Christ crushing the head of the serpent. Now, there are a few English versions of the Bible that use a different word in chapter, chapter 3, verse 15 for what uh, the seed of the woman is going to do to the serpent as opposed to what the, seed of, what the serpent is going to do to the woman's seed. But it's the same Hebrew word. And so the difference isn't to be found in the word itself, but in other information that we're given here. When it says that the seed of the woman is going to bruise or crush the serpent's head, that head wound is, is intended to indicate a mortal blow. It's intended to indicate defeat. The end. Game over for Satan. Whereas that blow that Satan is going to manage to get in, it says, he, you shall bruise or strike his heel. That implies that there, there will be a wounding. There will be suffering, in other words, but not defeat. And so this idea that our, our champion, our, our redeemer, our deliverer, our savior is going to suffer is woven throughout Scripture, and it all begins right here. And so in the New Testament, when it says the sufferings of the Christ were foretold, the foretelling of it starts in Genesis 3. Isaiah 53, 5 speaks of Christ as the this suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Or turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Because there, after his resurrection, Jesus himself speaks of how the the Holy Scriptures declared that he would suffer. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses, which would have included Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So from the beginning, from the very beginning, Christ is depicted as suffering. Now in this, back in Genesis 3, in this uh, he shall bruise, you shall bruise dialogue, the sequence of it is the mortal blow to the serpent is depicted, or it's mentioned first. And so that leaves no doubt about the outcome. Satan will be destroyed. But in the process, the seed of the woman will suffer. Kind of like in the movies, only this is the ultimate conflict, and it's real, it's true, it matters. And the conflict extends to the offspring, to all the offspring, meaning you and me. We're engaged in that conflict. And not only does the conflict extend to the offspring, but so does the victory. Christ's people will share in Christ's triumph over Satan. That's why you see in Romans 16, Paul saying to the the church in Rome, God will soon crush Satan under your feet because we share in his victory. Christians conquer Satan. Look with me at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12, 10 and 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's victory came after suffering. The same is true for us. The same is true for all of his people. So God declares the end from the beginning. Christ is the conqueror. Christ is the one who, although we brought on the conflict ourselves through our sin, Christ is our conquering champion. Genesis 3.15 was spoken by God to the serpent. The words are the Lord God speaking, and his audience is Satan. He's speaking to the serpent here. But those words were written for our instruction, to teach us. And we needed a deliverer. We needed a deliverer in the same way a person who's trapped inside a burning house needs a fireman to come in and rescue them. We needed that. But we also needed a conquering hero. We needed someone who would destroy our enemy. We needed someone who would free us from his tyranny. And all of that was bound up in the promise of Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I wonder sometimes 
If when Satan heard those words, seed of the woman is going to crush your head. If maybe Satan thought, what? Are you kidding me? How could the offspring of this feeble creature defeat me? Miserable, weak man who I so easily ruined. How will he crush my head? Well, it's true. No mere man could be a match for him. We sing in Mighty Fortress is our God. Regarding Satan, on earth is not his equal. There's no one on earth who can best Satan. But God had ordained that the woman's seed would also be his only begotten son. Satan caused man to sin, bringing a curse on all the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be the seed of the woman and to be his people's conquering champion. And that's a pretty good reason to celebrate Christmas, isn't it? And that's also a good reason for us to come to the table. Because in that conflict, the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman in what appeared to be his death, in what appeared to be his defeat. He went to the cross, he bled and he died for us. And that's what we remember now as we come to the Lord's table. So as we do, Let's take our hymnals and we're going to turn to 217 and we'll sing verses 1 through 5 of 217 before the supper.